Uh, for those of you who are visiting today, we're going through the Gospel of Luke, and it's, uh, it's a real privilege. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, please help yourself to one on the right-hand side, or even better, help yourself to the Uncover Booklet. Who has their Uncover Booklet? Great. What do we do with our Uncover Booklet? We make notes. We read on one side and we make notes on the other side, and it's a, a great thing to be doing. So I've asked uh, Julie to read our text today. Thanks, Hunter. Okay, I'm reading from Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 12, and I'll be reading through to chapter 7, verse 1. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking to his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say... Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who ill-treat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. 
Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. Isn't it great to read God's word together? It's always good to... Read about Jesus, our Saviour and our Lord. As we've been going through uh, this series, I don't know about you, but as you look afresh at the works and words of Jesus, it thrills my heart. It thrills my heart on many accounts. We started several weeks ago where we saw God through his word promise a Messiah. And the Messiah enters the world. And then we see Jesus, as Paul talked through last week, in his final preparation for ministry and the calling of his first disciples. We see Jesus from temptation to authentication to fellowship. We see from the lies of the devil constructed during his temptation to demons 
who affirm you are the Son of God, you are the Holy One, the Most High. Then Jesus ended ministry in in Nazareth, his hometown. The immediate thing he did was he opened the scroll in the synagogue and he proclaimed, Today in your hearing this prophecy is fulfilled. I am the one who has come to proclaim good news. I am the promised Messiah. I am the anointed one. This news was a challenge to those who heard it. Some saw it and some said, yeah, okay, I I understand. But then Jesus further went on and he, he challenged his people and soon they started rejecting his message in his hometown. They grabbed him to a, a cliff, attempted to throw him over, and he passed through. And then he moved into other regions. And the testimony we have from Luke in these other regions is that his teaching amazed people because he taught with authority and with power. And to authenticate his teaching, not only the authority and power is coming from his voice, but many, many, many were being healed of their affirmities. You see, we see as we read through Luke this this building of who the Messiah is. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of the Most High. He provides a miraculous catch of fish. We see four seasoned fishermen who'd been fishing all night. Jesus was teaching from the shore to some followers. And he turns to Simon Peter and says, Simon Peter, just go and cast your net out again. And I can see Simon Peter responds, Oh Lord, we've been fishing all night. What do you mean I cast my net out again? But you know what Simon Peter's response was? Okay, Master, I will do that. And then we had this miraculous catch of fish. And Simon Peter responds with these three things. He falls on his knees. He says, Lord, just depart from me. I cannot be in your presence because you are divine. You are holy. And he changes his title from master to Lord. He acknowledges who God is, who Christ is. He acknowledges his own sinfulness before God's Son. And then we see Peter, Andrew, James and John throw their nets down and follow Jesus. In the ensuing chapters, in chapters 5 and 6, we see Jesus continues to heal throughout Galilee. He heals a leper, he heals a paralytic it's kind of different with the paralytic. It's not just a physical healing. He also turns to him and says, Son, your faith has saved you. Your sins are forgiven. And what we see there is, for the first time, the religious elite, they look at Jesus and says, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, that's not a bad question. <laughs> that's a very good question. 
And Jesus turns to them and says, okay, just so you know that I have authority to forgive sins, he turns to the paralytic and says, son, take up your bed and walk. What is easier? So Jesus, we see, is full of authority, full of power. But now we see further opposition starting to occur. Because then we have three confrontations all on the Sabbath. Three confrontations. They talk about the question of fasting, the question of picking grains while you're walking through the field to eat on the Sabbath, and the question of healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And the upshot of these opposition and these religious elite getting stuck into Jesus as Jesus turns to them and says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Another gospel accounts, he says, was man made for the Sabbath or the Sabbath for man? Then he calls Levi a tax collector. A sinner among sinners. It's like being an accountant or a lawyer. He calls the tax collector. The religious elite would hate that. Not to mention the four fishermen that have already been called. Surely the Messiah would call someone other than the normal common people of the day sinners. Because of this opposition continued to grow, opposition grew because Jesus got stuck into the religious elite and said, hey, the laws you have made don't reflect the God you worship. The laws you have made do not reflect the God you worship. Because God's interested in the heart. So his mission continues around Galilee. His mission in Galilee is recorded in Luke from Luke chapter 5 through the Luke chapter 9, verse 50. It's all around Galilee, Capernaum, the northern part of the land. And one thing is common. Jesus is dividing opinion. He divides opinion. Who is Jesus? It's the same today. We've got probably people in this room who are divided over who Jesus is. We've got great news for you because the Word of God tells us who Jesus is. And we're going to look through that today. Julie read from Luke chapter 6, verse 12. And we see Jesus calling his inner circle, calling the twelve. I just want to make a couple of comments on this process. In Matthew, we have a similar account and probably the most well-known account of Jesus' teaching we know as the Beatitudes. Luke calls it a sermon on the plain or as we read in verse 17, he came down with them and stood on a level place. We'll talk about it in a little sec, but I just want to go back to how he called his 12. He called his 12 based on one thing and one thing alone. He prayed 
He prayed all night and he continued in prayer to God. Do you get the significance of that? He prayed, he prayed, and he prayed. Yes, he was the Son of God, but he showed complete uh, subordination to his Father in this instance because this issue was agonizing him, well, who should be the inner 12? He had a greater following than just 12. He had a crowd of disciples, as we will read further down the text. But he was before the Lord praying. And when he came down, he called his disciples and chose from them the 12. And we have their names there. When you make major decisions in your life, what priority is prayer in that decision-making process? The Lord's given us a model here. It's not only a model here in Luke chapter 6 and the next volume that, that uh, Luke writes, the book of Acts. Prayer becomes a significant aspect of the journey. Please note in the calling of the 12, what does Jesus call them? He doesn't call them disciples, he calls them apostles. Their function and their ongoing future is determined. They will be the men who go through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world to proclaim what? Proclaim him, to proclaim Jesus and the good news of salvation. But central to this calling is prayer. I'm going to do a straw poll here. Who finds it hard to pray? It's an incredibly hard thing to do, isn't it? Does that mean we should stop? No. Folks, I encourage you in all aspects of key decisions, just in all aspects of life, pray. For no other reason Jesus modeled it. Did Jesus need to pray? No. He knew all things. But he gave it to show us a model. Prayer will also become significant as we work through the sermon and how prayer works when you have an enemy and how prayer works when you are in a confrontation. Folks, put this in the margin of your notes. Lord, teach me to pray. Teach me to pray. It's his church. He is building it. We need to acknowledge he is the Lord of the church and all things pray. So Jesus comes down from the mountain. He comes down after praying and he stood on a level place. This is a shot of uh, Lake Galilee looking north. I don't know if this is the mountain in the distance that Jesus came down from. I have no idea. But it gives you a, a sort of a view of the topography of what goes on. The plain or the level place, um, you know, there's a, some say there might be a contradiction here between this and Matthew. Not really because the plain or level place could also be translated plateau. 
We come down off a mountain onto a plateau. It's in the mountainous region, as you can see by the pictures. There's plenty of plateaus in around northern Sea of Galilee. But he comes down, he stands on a silver place with a great crowd. Firstly, he comes down with the apostles. There's a great crowd of disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So we're talking this is where we are. We're in north, uh, northern Galilee, right at the top of the Sea of Galilee, around Capernaum here. He's in here somewhere. The mountain he came down from could have been anywhere in this region, could have been anywhere in this region. They're all mountainous regions. But the people have, have started gathering. They started gathering. They've gathered as far south as Jerusalem, up to here. They gathered as far north as Sidon and Tyre on the coast, down to here. His popularity was growing. And so was the, the ethnic mix of the crowds that were following him. It was highly likely the folks up here are Gentiles. And obviously highly likely the folks down here are Jews. They were starting to get a mixed crowd, starting to hear about Jesus and starting to follow him. These verses here in 17 to 19 also show us and tell us that his ministry was flourishing. He continued to heal. He continued to heal disease from demonization. He cast out unclean spirits. And everyone sought to touch him. Everyone sought to get close to Jesus because they could see he had power. So we have this group sitting here, expectantly waiting. And then we pick up what I consider some of the toughest sayings of Jesus. Luke abbreviates the Beatitudes. For in Matthew we have eight Beatitudes, and in Luke we have four. Luke is unique in that he gives four woes to go with the four blessings. And this section of Luke is probably about 30% of what Matthew accounts for us. But what Jesus does, he lifts his eyes on his disciples and he says to them. And he pronounces these four blessings. You are blessed or you are happy if you are poor or humble. This is not poor in a material sense. It's not poor with relation to how much cash you've got in your pocket. Jesus is getting to the heart of the issue. He says, blessed are you if you understand that you are a sinner before a holy God. You are poor in spirit. You are humble before God. The promise is, if you have that response to God and to me who is the Son of God, yours is the kingdom of God. Same for you and I today. We turn and we acknowledge who our Savior is and that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Yours will be the kingdom. 
Secondly, blessed are you who are hungry now. Notice that in, in the text, he, he puts it into the present tense. Hungry here relates to you are spiritually thirsting and you are looking for salvation here and now. You great crowd of disciples, you great crowd, full stop, and the apostles. You are here and you are hungry. You are blessed because you are searching. That may be you today. You may be sitting in this congregation searching for the truth of who Jesus is. God calls you blessed in that pursuit. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Weeping here relates, and it's a strong Old Testament illusion, weeping relates to repentance. Blessed are you who repent. Blessed are you who know where you've come from, and you know when you, you see the glory of Jesus who's before you, and you repent. Because I'll turn your mourning to joy. And then the fourth one, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Blessed are you when people know you love Jesus and they spurn you. Oh, that hits the pit of the stomach, doesn't it? God knows that. God knows as you walk this journey of life, as you go into the places of work, into your schools, into your places of education, into your retirement villages, no matter where it is, that if you stand up for the name of Jesus, you will be spurned. But what a great promise. If you're hated for the name of Jesus, you'll be blessed. Then he pronounces four woes, and these are unique to Luke. They're not in any of the other accounts. They're not in, in uh, Matthew or Mark or John. And it's a contrast statement. You imagine it. Jesus is sitting on this plane talking with this great crowd. He's just outlined what it is to, to have fellowship with him because remember the primary, the people he's talking to is his disciples, those who know him, those who follow him, those who have made a commitment to him. And he says, hey, this is yours if you know me. These are the blessings that will come to you. And then you almost see as he pans out across the crowd, he knows there's a great crowd there. There's others there who don't know him. And he gives warnings. The rich relates to arrogance and pride. Woe to you who are rich, for you received your consolation. Jesus talks about this in other areas. It's more difficult for a rich man to go through the eye of the needle than enter the kingdom of God. That's material richness. But here the richness is saying rich is actually relating to you are arrogant and prideful. You say you don't need God. You'll make it your own way. Because you've received your consolation. Your comfort is here on earth. But in eternity it's going to be a little bit different. 
He continues with the woes, and he, it's a straight parallel. You know, and we had the blessings for the hungry. Now we have the woe for those who are full. Full with arrogance and pride. If you can't turn and repent, eventually you will be hungry. Because your soul will thirst for something you have said no to. Further parallel, you are laughing now, those who experience a false joy which is set apart from Jesus. And that's the trappings of today's society, is it not? Today's society, we have so much experience, so much entertainment, so many false aspects of joy. Don't count them greater than a personal relationship with Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. You may have your joy, you may be filled now, you may have the best life now, but you may mourn and weep because your soul is far removed from God. And he finishes the parallelism with, woe to you who are well liked. And all people speak well of you. And he uses the conclusion, well, that's nothing unusual. Just as in the previous part of the Beatitudes, um, you were to rejoice because you aligned yourself with the prophets. Here he's saying you will suffer like a false prophet. People speak well of you. They like you. They, they say you're a good bloke or blokeess. But hey, that's not the issue. It's the heart and your response to Jesus. And then he continues. And he says, if you're my disciples, this is what love looks like. I've got to tell you, I've been working through this passage for a number of weeks and I wish I could probably take some of these words out of the page. It's very convicting. When you see what Jesus commands us as his disciples to love. We'll very quickly go through this and I'd ask you, we talked about prayer, pray through these things this week. Grab these verses, pray through these things. Lord, help me love my enemies. Help me do good to those who hate me. Help me to bless those who curse me. Lord, help me to pray for those who abuse me. This is authentic faith in Christ. This is authentic cutting-edge stuff. This is how we are to treat our enemies. I don't know who your enemies are. I hope there's no one in this room who's at enmity with anybody else. I hope your enemies aren't here within the walls. Question. As I see the atrocities on the television of ISIS, of social reform, of atrocities around sex trade and trafficking and the impact of pornography, I see men and women who tout these things. What is my first response? 
challenge to my heart is my response is to get on my knees and love my enemies because that's what Jesus commanded me to do. To love my enemies. And that means I've got to love all Australians. I've got to love all Africans, all Chinese, all Russians, all Egyptians, all Muslims, all people. Why? Jesus commands it. Jesus just doesn't leave it there. He just doesn't hang it out there and says, this is what you must do. He then gives an example of what it love means and what it looks like. That's what it looks like. You offer the other cheek. You give the shirt off your back, and not only the shirt off your back, you give your coat as well. I have a very nice coat. I'm not sure about this. It means I give to the beggar. And it means when I've been stolen from, I do not demand back what has been taken. Man, these are hard things. These are tough things. But this is radical love, folks. This is the love Christ has shown for you and I. Because we are enemies of God by our very nature. We hate God by our very nature because our sin has removed us from him. But God demonstrated his love in that while we were all sinners, what? Christ died for us. To redeem us. To buy back. So that we could love. He doesn't finish with that command because he he talks about loving your enemies. He gives you illustrations of what it means to love and then he blows out the golden rule. Now, what is the golden rule? Everyone knows what the golden rule is. Uh, 6 verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. That is the command. The do so is a is a imperative not a passive it's not something that that we try to do it is this is what you do if you love me if you are my disciples if you follow me this is how it looks and then he gives three illustrations of radical love here he gives three illustrations in verse 32 33 and 34 as you read through the text i hope you pick up these things of uh, repetition For in 32, 33, and 34, you have the one line of repetition. What benefit is it to you? It says that three times. What benefit is to you if you give to somebody who you know is going to give back? What benefit of you if you uh, do good to somebody if you know you're going to receive good in return? What benefit is to you if you're going to lend to somebody knowing you're going to get it back? He says, no. Radical love looks like this. 
He summarizes in 34, 35, and 36, radical love is that you love your enemies. You do good. You lend and expect nothing. Therefore, your reward will be great. That's what he says in verse 34, 35. Expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And your love reflects your relationship with the Most High God. See, our love is not based on our actions or our works. Love is based on the reflection of Christ working through us. That's grace. And this is summarized in one verse in verse 36 here. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. God has shown you great mercy, so therefore you show great mercy. That is love. The basis of loving is God's mercy to us. The only way we can do these things is to understand that the Spirit of God dwells within us and enables us to do it because Christ enables us. The teaching of love. Jesus not only finishes with the teaching of love, he also talks about another issue, and that's of judgment. And I think in the backdrop of the culture that he was in where many judgments were being passed down by the religious elite, he addresses this issue and Luke also wants to address this issue. There are four exhortations. Do not judge. Do not condemn. Forgive and give. Once again, these can only be done in and through the power of the Spirit. Because we like to judge, don't we? We like to frame things according to our rules and judge based on whatever it may be. Christ says don't. Even more, realize that it's destructive to judge and to condemn. Because when you do that, when you judge and condemn, what you're doing is you're taking away the role of God who is righteous and just. God is the righteous judge. He is the only one who has the right to condemn. Just like he is the rightful being who shows mercy to us in our sin. Fully gracious, yet fully just. That's why Jesus gives these commands. Don't worry about those things. Don't worry about when you've been wronged. But forgive. And then he starts with some concluding parables to the sermon. He gives three concluding parables. Actually, before we start, I just want to go back. I want to go back to an interesting verse which uh, helps explain this judging thing. It's in the midst of verse 38. It says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. With the measure you use it, will be measured back to you. It's like a parable. Jesus throws out a little parable. Does anyone know what that means? Great difficulty understanding this in light of what he's saying. You know, judge, don't be judged, don't condemn, give and be, you know, and forgive. 
And then we go into this language, and the language is a, it's a really interesting piece of language. It's talking about, most people believe it's uh, graphically illustrating the image of counting out grain. Has anyone here ever counted out grain? No, I didn't think so. Anyone here like to count out grain? Didn't think so. But this is a common image in Palestine during this time. They'd count out grain. And the process when they'd measure and count out grain would be quite a wonderful process. The seller would crouch on the ground uh, with the measure between his legs. So he'd, he'd crouch on the ground and he'd have a bowl or an urn between his legs and he'd be pouring uh, grain into that and shaking into it with a rotary motion to make the grain settle down. So he's almost grabbing this thing, like, a bit like gold panning. And uh, then he fills the measure to the top and gives it another shake. Next, he presses the corn together strongly with both hands. So you can see what he's doing. He's trying to get a full measure into this basket. Finally, he heaps it into a cone, tapping it carefully to press the grains together. From time to time, this man, would do, man or woman would bore a hole in the cone and pour a few more grains into it, ensuring that full measure would come until there's literally no more room for a single piece of grain. And that way, whoever's purchasing the, the, the grain would be really happy, wouldn't they? Because they know they're getting the full measure. They know they're absolutely guaranteed a full measure. It could not hold any more. You know what? According to these verses, this is the full measure that comes from God into the lap of one who gives. Folks, Jesus is saying here, you can never outgive God. You can never outgive God. When you practice these things, loving your enemies, doing good, judging not, condemning not, forgiving and giving, God will provide abundant blessing. Abundant blessing will come with generosity. Mind you, I'd also like to note that in the context of this sermon, this generosity need not be equated with prosperity. Since in context of these words, Jesus is talking about God's forgiveness and absence of condemnation. That's the blessing, folks. God's abundant blessing is the fact that he saves you and his spirit dwells within you. Final few verses, there are three parables. Very quickly talks about the blind guide is ineffective. Jesus gives a parable. A blind man can't lead a blind man. You'll fall into a pit. Therefore, find someone who can lead you. He's talking in the context of discipleship here. He also in this parable talks about the importance of self-evaluation. He says, you know, Take the log out of your own eye before you look for the speck in somebody else's. 
That's the heart of disciple. We consistently keep short accounts with our Savior about our own hypocrisy. Cause it hypocrisy. He doesn't beat around the bush here. The second parable talks about fruit trees. Simple parable says, okay, good fruit bears good fruit trees bear good fruit. Bad fruit trees bear bad fruit. You reap what you sow. And the final exhortation, which I think sums up the whole sermon in a beautiful way. Jesus says these words, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show what he is like. He is like a person who builds his house on a solid foundation. So when storms come, the foundation is strong. Please note the it's an interesting variant between verse 48 and 49. He says he's like one who builds deep and lays the foundation deep into the rock. Who is the rock? The rock is Jesus. Folks, as I look through this sermon, I want you to, the sermon on the, on the plane, one thing that needs to be highlighted is, are you building your life on Jesus? That's the way he summarizes. For you to love your neighbor, for you not to judge, to not condemn, you need to build your life on Jesus. It's all about him. He is the rock. He is the solid foundation. The rest is immaterial. When storm comes, when trials come, Jesus is our rock. Don't be like men who build on the sand on the philosophies of the world, on truth that is removed from Scripture. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. It's my challenge to you. Who are you standing on week by week, day by day, hour by hour? My prayer is you stand on Christ and the truth of his word. Thanks, music team. Can we uh, sing?